0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Morning again. It's Palm Sunday, right? We are one week away from celebrating the central event of Christianity, in fact, I would argue it's the central event of history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have said it many times. Without the resurrection, there is no Christianity, no matter what anybody tells you. This is something that uh, it, it seems like a no-brainer to those of us who have come to Christ, who have come to believe in the resurrection. I'm not going to share the, all the details of this story again, but I, I, I've shared it many times uh, I had to write a paper for a religion class in college, and the paper—the title of the paper was My Most Cherished Belief. We all had to write this paper. And the professor asked me, he knew I was a Christian because of the discussions we'd had in class, and he asked me what the topic of my paper was going to be, and I said, well, it's going to be the resurrection. And he seemed genuinely mystified that I would choose the resurrection of all things to write about. He said, why? Why the resurrection? I said, because without the resurrection, there's no Christianity. He said, oh, I disagree. Jesus didn't have to rise from the dead for us to take his message of love and peace seriously. And this is when we kind of had a little discussion there. I said, well, I'm, I'm only going to write one paper. I can either write why I believe in the resurrection or I will write why I believe the resurrection is necessary for Christianity. And I think that's the one I, I wound up writing. Uh, but this is it. The idea that Jesus came to preach love and peace and can't we all just get along this is the Jesus that is modeled and held up uh, uh, for people to revere by millions of people even people who call themselves Christians but he didn't come for that he came to redeem mankind When it comes to restoring human relationship, that is a wonderful side effect uh, that happens among the redeemed. But for those who remain unredeemed, who are determined to stay apart from Christ, what does he say? I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword that's going to separate even blood families. He came to redeem mankind and the whole Bible. I remember Fuchsia Pickett. She was, I don't know how many of you are familiar with her writing or her preaching. I had never heard of her till I was down at Canaan Land and she came along with a guy named George Stormont who for a, a time served as pastor to Smith Wigglesworth. And these two did a, uh, they were there for like Sunday to, to Wednesday night uh, for special meetings. And Fuchsia Pickett was this little old frail thing. She had to be, almost carried up into the pulpit where she stood there like this and preached her sermon and it was powerful the things she talked about but one of the first things she said was she goes she thought it was funny that people tried to figure out what god's plan for mankind is she said we have no idea do you understand that the whole bible after genesis chapter 3 is nothing but god's plan to it's it's god's it's remedy it's god's plan to remedy everything that went wrong with the interruption in God's plan the whole bible from genesis chapter 3 is the remedy to the interruption in God's plan now that's that's maybe a little dicey way of putting it but you know what she means right i mean the fall takes place in genesis chapter 3 we don't get to see much of what humanity looks like without sin we see little glimpses and they're beautiful What was it really like to walk and talk with God in the cool of the day? And we can talk about how this has been restored to us, but do we really think that we have the same kind of easy access to the tangible, audible presence of God as Adam did? I don't think we do, because we still carry remnants of the sin nature in our flesh, Our spirit is new, and we're going to get to that. But what would it be like to have that kind of relationship with God? We don't know, and everything in the Bible is about getting us back there, back to the garden. There is no kind of fellowship. We don't enjoy quite that kind of fellowship. And then here, on the other side of the resurrection, yeah, we enjoy newness of life. We enjoy the victory. We enjoy restoration. We enjoy access to the throne of grace because all this has been done. But if we are not careful, what we will, we'll see the cross as kind of a quick and ugly, albeit necessary, pit stop on the way to redemption. In other words, yes, it's all about the resurrection, but we can't skip over the cross. You know, I, I speak a lot, uh, and you've, if you've been here any length of time, you hear me. On Sundays and Wednesdays, I speak a lot about what it means, how crucial it is to see ourselves as in Christ, about how his righteousness is our righteousness, and how our ability to live and behave in ways that please and honor God are entirely dependent on the spirit of Christ, the spirit of the resurrected Christ living in us. If the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal body, right? And all this is true. The resurrection is the thing. But how important is the crucifixion itself? Other than the obvious, that without the crucifixion, there was no resurrection. Jesus had to die to rise from the dead, right? I was poking around on the internet the other day looking at, uh, there's some great, uh, you know, you can type in just any question and, and it'll take you to oh, answers.com or some website. In this case, I think what popped up was uh, Catholic Answers. It was a forum. Uh, but the question that, I don't know what I was even looking for, but in, in, somewhere in my search results, there was the question, why is it that St. Paul never mentions the, uh, the crucifixion? Why is it that St. Paul never, why did St. Paul never mentioned the crucifixion if it really took place. And here are, I'm going to read, share with you two of the answers off of this website, okay? This is a forum, okay? So these are just other people out there in internet land answering this. And here's the first one. And this wasn't the first answer. This is the first one I'm going to read you. I believe we must look at Paul's motivations and the role of his letters. Paul was a missionary. His policy was to proclaim the good news of Christ to non-Jews in areas. When he felt the church was established in an area, he moved on. His letters were primarily intended as extensions of his missionary activity. Paul provided advice encouragement, and correction in his absence. At times, he would address specific problems in a community. He applied theological insight to the issues. These letters were intended to be read publicly. Many of the problems that Paul encountered in his communities are the same problems we encounter today, and his answers are the same answers we need today. His advice tells us how to behave in our world as we encounter the difficulties and mixed messages we receive from the media and relativism in society. Hope this makes sense. Peace. That's kind of a non-answer, but this is this person's attempt to explain why Paul doesn't mention the crucifixion. Here's another one. Uh, A certain author has postulated that Paul, this is my favorite one, by the way, uh, Saul of Tarsus, did play a role in the crucifixion of Jesus, but it was so horrific that Paul didn't want to admit to it. Likewise, Paul said he held the clothes of those who stoned Stephen to death, but he could well have played a more aggressive role. Saul of Tarsus was a thug and maybe a vicious murderer. After his epiphany, it would hardly serve him to say that he was in the crowd who called out for Jesus' crucifixion or assaulted Jesus when Jesus was carrying his cross. There are limits to forgiveness, after all. The early Christians were suspicious of him enough as it was. In this scenario, Jesus would have been crucified in early A.D. 36 with Stephen being stoned several months later. In other words, what he's saying is the reason Paul never mentions the crucifixion is he had something to do with it, and he was embarrassed, and he was afraid if he mentioned the crucifixion, nobody would listen to what he said. Thank God, most of the answers were simply people pointing out how wrong the question was in the first place. Uh, People say, you've been sadly misinformed. You've been duped. Have you read your Bible? And then they would list Scripture reference after Scripture reference where Paul specifically references the crucifixion. He does it all the time, and there's nothing ambiguous about it. We've we've been in Galatians lately, so let's start with this. In uh, Galatians chapter 3, if you've got your Bibles, open them. If you don't, you can read off the screen. Galatians chapter 3. Verse 1, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? Galatians six fourteen. But God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. First Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? First Corinthians 22, uh, sorry, one twenty-two: For the Jews request a sign, and the Greeks after wisdom, but we, pe- we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And most famously, perhaps, is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes my question is you know these are this is a handful of references several times in addition to talking about his death about his crucifixion he references the cross of Christ my question especially this time of year is how can he ever or why would he ever mention the cross of Christ the crucifixion of Christ the death of Christ without mentioning the resurrection of Christ which he does And we're going to cover the resurrection next week and its importance. Today, even though this is Palm Sunday, it's not Good Friday, but Good Friday, Pastor Gene Turner of the Methodist Church will be preaching. Uh, We're doing that as a community service. So this is going to be sort of a combination Palm Sunday, Good Friday message today. And we're going to look at the crucifixion. There is little doubt. I I would not expect a lot of argument about this observation. We live in kind of a soft culture. Words like triggered and snowflake and safe spaces have joined words and concepts like acceptance and tolerance. They're all around us, and they're all geared to protect us from the horrible prospect of being offended. And nothing offends us more than being judged. The judgmentalism is the worst thing I can think of that you can be accused of. Judgmentalism tied together with intolerance, which they extend to believe—you know—well, if you do not tolerate this, if you judge this, that equals hate. And pseudo-Christians, as I mentioned earlier, love to hold up Jesus as the ultimate expression of non-judgmentalism, of tolerance, of acceptance. And there's a problem with that, of course. I've talked about this before, so I'll just mention it for now. But every miracle Jesus did included some measure of judgment. When he approached the man, the lame man at the pool... He approached him to heal him, and he asked him, do you want to be made well? But why? Why target somebody who's physically handicapped and ask them that? Does that mean he, Jesus himself, is unaccepting of the man as he is? No, but Jesus was not willing to tolerate that man's condition. When he healed the woman that the, uh, the, the, was bent in half, remember, in the synagogue on the Sabbath... And he's getting ready to straighten her up, and they're like, they're watching him to see if he's going to perform a miracle on the Sabbath. We've been talking about this a lot on Wednesday nights. And he said, Should this daughter of Abraham have to wait one more day? Why would I wait until tomorrow? She suffered this long. He tells her to stand up, she stands up. He heals her. It's not that Jesus is intolerant of people who have these diseases who have these conditions. He's intolerant of the condi- He judges these conditions, these sicknesses, as wrong. So he fixes them. And obviously, how many times did he heal somebody and then say, now, go and sin no more? He said it, we know, to the woman who was caught in adultery. He said it to the man at the pool of Bethesda. Now stop sinning lest something worse comes on you. How this poor guy's been laying down there in this condition for all these years, and this is practically the first thing Jesus said? Can't you let the guy just enjoy life for a while before you start talking about sin? And that's small potatoes in the grand scheme of things. And Jesus makes this clearer in the book of John than he does anywhere else. But he came, among other things, but primarily to show us the Father. He came primarily to ransom us with his death, and we'll talk about that. But one of the things that he did in his ministry was to show us the Father. And he says it outright, and he says it many times. We've been looking again in the book of John on Wednesday nights, and so we've seen a lot of these quotes and conversations. But he'd say to to the Jews, if you knew me, you'd know my Father. If you believed the Father, you'd believe me. I and the Father are one. I only do what I see my Father in heaven doing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Do You want to know, you want to know what, how God views sickness? Look at how Jesus dealt with sickness. Okay? Everywhere he went, teaching, preaching, and healing... We're not going to be there for a little while on Sunday mornings, but I want you to go ahead and look at Colossians. Chapter 1, verse 15 says this. He, speaking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. That word image means the exact representation. We'll read on in chapter 1, pick it up in verse 19. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself, by him whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And you want to talk about judgmentalism? Stay in Colossians. Turn over to chapter 3 and look at verse 5. Colossians 3:5, Therefore, put to death your members which are on the earth fornication, uncleanness, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of of disobedience. This this is what I really want you to see. This kind of goes back to this idea of, well, I like Jesus better than the Old Testament God. I like the New Testament God, Jesus, better than I like the Old Testament God, God, because the Old Testament God is this wrathful, vengeful, judgmental, angry God. And the New Testament Jesus is peaceful, tolerant, loving, and accepting. And Jesus is making clear I am the exact representation of God. The things I speak are the things I hear him speak, the things I do are the things I see him do. There is no difference. I'm not a calm version of an angry God. And the wrath of God is being poured out on the sons of disobedience. So he says, put these things away. Kill these things. Now, when we get to Colossians, you'll see that verse doesn't need to be scary to us. Okay? But that's it. God didn't stop judging sin. He didn't stop calling sin, sin because of the cross. Sin is still sin. And the wrath of God is going to fall on the sons of disobedience. That's just not us, right? But, but I sinned today. Does that mean if I did something like that, some of that wrath is going to fall on me? I want you to know this. God loves you. And? Come on. First spiritual law. God loves you. And has a wonderful plan for your life, right? God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. God is love. God's mercies are new every morning. His mercy endures forever. That's all good news, isn't it? Guess what? God is also the judge of all the earth. He judges all things. Vengeance belongs to him. No sin shall abide in his presence. The soul that sins shall die. How can he be a loving God with a wonderful plan for my life if that's the way he feels about sin? When he says the soul that sins shall die and then turns around and says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, where's the mercy? It's easy to say you're merciful if you don't have to be merciful toward anybody. I am merciful to everybody who doesn't sin. I am merciful to the sinless. Unfortunately, that's nobody. So what's reserved for you? Wrath. He's a just God. There is no remission of sin without shed blood. The bottom line is this. God is holy and we are sinful. The difference between fallen man and God is a profound difference. And that difference is sin. Ah, but God is love, and he's merciful. So he forgives our sin. The end. Praise and worship team, come on up. Stop. Nope, 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 nope. But God is just. We go back and forth. He cannot, in his holiness, ignore sin to forgive us. That's kind of how we see forgiveness. Well, I'm just going to forget about it. Can't undo it. You can't unsin against me. So if I'm going to forgive you, I just have to forget about it. God in his holiness can't do it that way because he's a God of justice. Payment has to be made. In order to offer us forgiveness and in order to position us as free before him, payment must be made. Sin saddles us with a debt that we can't pay back. My favorite illustration of this is Jesus' parable about the, uh, the wicked servant, the unforgiving servant, Matthew chapter 18, where he says uh, a, a man had two, a uh, king had uh, t- two servants, and uh, he, was re- he was settling his accounts with them, and, and one came before him who owed him uh, 10,000 talents. Now, you can do your search and find out what that's supposed to be worth, and they'll say, well, it depends on talents of what, but the, the bottom line is this represents about 100 to 150,000 years' wages. 150,000 years of wages. In other words, this is a debt that this servant has no way of paying. And what's he say? Just be patient with me. The king said, gonna, I'm going to cast you into prison, you and your family, until the debt's paid. He said, have patience with me, and I'll repay it all. Now, he has a cry from his heart. I will do everything necessary to pay you back. And yet the size of the debt told the king that there's no way. No matter how sincere he is, no matter how much he means to pay me back, we both know there's nothing he can do to dig himself out of this hole. So he forgives the debt. He forgives the debt. Hang on to that thought a second as we just, to follow up, if I were preaching a sermon on forgiveness, the next parts—the part I would focus on more—but then there, this servant went out to another, to one of the, to his fellow servant, who owed him about uh, hundred days' wages, and said, "Pay me, or I'm going to throw you in jail." He says, "Just have patience with me; I'll repay all." But he was unwilling, and had him turned over to the jailers, and then the king heard about it. And it was not a good scene. He, and, and he had him, he had him cast into, the, into prison. And this is the picture that Jesus paints uh, for us. This is how God's going to treat us if we don't forgive our brothers from our heart, right? But going back to this first one, the one who owed the unpayable debt. And it says the king forgave him. What does that mean? Somebody paid it. Who was it? It was the king. He's out that money. It had, it had been finance for this guy, and now it was a gift. It wasn't like that debt went away. The king just assumed it. It was free for the servant, but costly for the king. God loves us. God's heart is to forgive us, but the debt has to be paid. God's wrath, will be poured out on the sons of disobedience because of sin. That wrath has to fall. Judgment has to be carried out. And the horror and the beauty of the cross is that there, at the cross, Jesus was made sin for us. The cross, as we see it, and rightly so, is a symbol of the great mercy of God it is also a symbol and a reminder of the most judgmental act in history. The most judgmental act in history was when God took our sin, laid it on Jesus, and let his wrath fall on all that sin. You think back to Moses when he was um, he's on the mountain. He's getting the Ten Commandments. Do you remember this? And God tells him, Moses... The people have defiled themselves. They've made a golden calf, and they're worshiping it. I'm going to destroy them. And Moses says, Moses intercedes. He says, God, please don't do this. The Egyptians are going to hear about it. It's going to make you look bad. They're going to say, oh, God got him out of Egypt, but he couldn't get him any further than that, please. And because Moses interceded, and he had a covenant with God, God relented. A little bit later on, he says the same thing, Moses, stand here with me, I've, I've seen this people, they're stubborn, they're hard-headed, I'm going to wipe them out, and I'm going to start all over with you, I'll make a great nation, time is nothing to God, I'm going to start all over with you, what an honor, Moses was going to be the next Abraham, and Moses was like, no, if you're going to do that, if you're going to destroy them, you're I'm going to stand with them, and you'll have to destroy me too. This is literally standing in the gap for the people. And you've heard me preach on this before. I am 100% convinced that God, if he really wanted to destroy him, he, he didn't have to have Moses' permission. He could have just done it. But he told Moses specifically so that Moses would intercede, would stand in the gap. In this case, Jesus was that one who stood in the gap Only this time, God didn't turn from that wrath. He went ahead and let it fall on Jesus. Jesus stood there in our place, and rather than saying, okay, since it's Jesus, I'm not going to do it. No, he let all that wrath fall. Now, here's the thing. Again, try to think of it outside of time. All that wrath was poured out on the sin of mankind. All of your sins, your sinful acts, all of your iniquity, Your sin nature was judged at the cross. So when he talks in Colossians or writes in Colossians about the wrath of God being poured out on the sons of disobedience and he lists these sins that we need to put to death in our members. First first read through there is, if the wrath of God is still going to be poured out on this, then what good did the cross do? He's not talking about that. He's saying, since you have already been redeemed, stop doing these things. You're not among the sons of disobedience. Who are you? You're the sons of God. Therefore, stop doing these things because that's not what sons of God are supposed to do. You're supposed to be walking in resurrection power. You're supposed to be walking in the Spirit by the power of the Holy Ghost, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. Is supposed. You're supposed to let him live this life through you and that doesn't include these things. So stop doing the things that are going to bring the wrath of God on the sons of disobedience. When his wrath is poured out, guess what? We are in Christ. Our portion of that wrath, and we have a portion, every single one of us, but our portion of God's wrath has already been absorbed in Jesus Christ at the cross. The cross is ugly, and the cross is beautiful. God showed us what this was going to look like when he gave, him, when he gave uh, Israel this, the sacrifice system. Listen, there's, here's how you worship me. Here's how I want you to live. And in his great mercy and in his foresight, he knew they weren't always going to do it right. So he said, so when you blow it, here's what you do. You uh, pick some flowers, and you wave them before me and say, I'm sorry, God, and go about your business. No. You bring an animal and you kill it before me. I want you to see the blood. I want you to experience and see the death that results from sin. Now nobody who paid attention, nobody who really was listening to God, really believed that the blood of these animals cleansed them. The word was atonement, which meant covered them. They were covered And this was expressed most fully and most beautifully on the day of atonement when the blood of a lamb was carried behind the veil into the Holy of Holies and poured out on the mercy seat, the covering of the ark. And all of this was to show us a picture of what Jesus was going to do. What these sacrifices which had to be done over and over and over represented, Jesus did once and for all. His blood didn't cover our sins for another year. His blood washed our sins away. And what does that mean? It means now when I read about sin, I should be conscious about what I do. Good heavens, you think Paul Paul certainly writes about the cross. He certainly writes about forgiveness. He certainly writes about the resurrection. But he writes a lot about sin, too. So does Peter. So does John. We are not. The message of the cross is, is not Jesus paid it all so I can do whatever I want. It's look what my sin did to Jesus Christ. Look at what God had to pay to get me free from that. Why do I want to go back into that? Why do I not want to honor God with my life since he paid such a dear, dear price to save me? If we, we don't have to worry about the wrath of God because if we are in Christ, as far as God's concerned, we were already crucified with Christ that's the payment when Paul mentions the cross when Paul mentions the crucifixion without specifically also mentioning the resurrection that's what we need to remember the cross is where the debt was paid please and this is where I've only I've done an in-depth sermon on this but I've mentioned it from time to time I think the better you are by nature. And if you, I mean, There are some people we, that the world and we would generally refer to as good. This is a person, maybe you came to Christ early in life. Maybe you haven't come to Christ at all, but you've never, never hurt anybody. You treat people well. You treat people like everyone. You live by the golden rule. And there are people like that. Brad Dawson used to say that often, that some people seem to be better by nature than others are by grace. And it's true. And again, if you came to Christ early, you've tried to walk after, uh, you know, walk in the way, you can look maybe even honestly at your life and say, never really been all that bad. And I think the danger there is, then you look at the cross and you think, he didn't have to go through all that for me. But he did. He did. God doesn't grade on a curve. And you inherited the sin nature you inherited as much of the sin nature as Adolf Hitler did. The sin nature that even causes you to be tempted to do. Maybe you look at your life, you look at the outworkings and say, I've been tempted just as much as anybody else, only I've made better choices. Jesus said, if you're tempted, if your mind goes that way, even if you didn't act it out, that the fact that you think this way is indicative of the sin nature that reigns in you. If you so much as look at a woman lustfully, you've got the same problem as the person who acts on that and commits adultery. You've got a sin nature. This is what he redeems us from. And no matter how good you act, the cross was necessary for your salvation. The price for your redemption is the cross. The price for my redemption is the cross. The price for a mass murderer's redemption, should he come to Christ, is the cross. The, the, the price is no less for the best person or the worst person because we are all under that death penalty because of sin. And it wasn't just a quick and easy death. Many of you have heard a medical description or a description from a medical doctor about what the body, went, body goes through, what a human being had to endure on the cross. And it's horrible. It's hard to read. It's hard to look at. Even, even movies like The Passion that I think uh, made an effort to show it as more real than other movies in the past and certainly more real than many paintings do. You know, a very clean picture of Jesus on the cross and he's got a little bit of blood trickling down his head and little cut in his side and little holes in his hands other than that he looks pretty good but we know don't we that that body was practically shredded before it was ever nailed to the cross and he willingly endured that because if he didn't he doesn't get us back this is expensive but it's what I want. This is what, this is what this whole thing is for. It's to buy you back. It's a huge price, says God, but I'm going to pay it. The only difference between that and any other purchase is we get to decide whether he gets us or not. Praise and worship team, you really can be making your way up here now. I got to make one more point, so walk slowly. I just want you up here when I... This is Palm Sunday. And when Jesus, this is, I've preached this message more or less every Palm Sunday for the past several years. So I'm just, and, and, this, and if you haven't been here for those, uh, I'm sorry because I'm not going to re-preach it today. Uh, but the core of that message is when Jesus, this is the week before his crucifixion comes riding into, riding into Jerusalem. And John gives us a, the best picture of, of this week leading up to it because we see all these conversations, right, as the Pharisees are arguing with Jesus. How can you make these claims? How can you do these things? If you're really the Messiah, and if these acts you're doing, these miracles, these healings, are really of God, why are you doing them on the Sabbath? How can you claim to be the Messiah if we know where you're from? Blah, 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 all this stuff. Uh, And they are really fighting to hold on to their position. But they can see, little by little, it's slipping away. The people are falling more and more in love with Jesus. They are becoming more and more willing to claim Jesus as the Messiah. But remember, even the ones who adored him, even the ones who wanted to confess him, what they really wanted was to be free of Rome. If this is the Messiah, then he's going to be just like a David. And he's going to come, and he's going to be this great warrior king. And they thought... As they examine the miracles, he must be the Messiah because look at everything he can do. Surely only the Messiah could do this. So, all right, we are with you. And when he comes riding into town, they start waving the palm branches and laying them down and creating what we would call laying out the red carpet, rolling out the red carpet. They're throwing their garments on the ground, and they are singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they are singing what? What's the word? Hosanna. Hosanna. Hosanna! And what's it mean? Save now. All right. We are finally, publicly, unreservedly, boldly proclaiming that we believe you are the Messiah. You are the Savior, so get to saving. And they were so disappointed that he didn't do it, that he didn't do what they thought he was going to do which was lead them or just supernaturally call down fire on Rome or at least do something supernaturally powerful to immediately free them from Rome's control and elevate them to the kind of kingdom they were under David, under Solomon. And they were so offended by his failure to do that that this same crowd who was singing blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord a week later were the same ones yelling crucify him crucify him Pilate I'm innocent of this man's blood the crowd who was saying blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord said his blood be on us and our children they didn't know what they were saying though did they His blood, oh yes, by all means, his blood be on me and my children. Save us, save now. That's exactly where he was going. To the cross, to save them. Not from Rome, but from sin. He was saving them from the very thing that put them under the thumb of Rome and the Greeks before that, and the Persians before that, and the Babylonians before that, their sin. And not just them, but the very people who had kept Israel under their thumbs. He was going to the cross to save them. His blood be on us and our children. And if his blood is on us, then we're saved. We're forgiven. Suddenly we get that mercy. The judgment that was poured out on Jesus at the cross on Good Friday pays the penalty for the sin. Stand up with me while I ask you this. You know he paid it. You know he went to the cross. Historically, there's, there is very little argument or doubt that Jesus was crucified secular historians and people who don't believe might want to argue about whether it had anything to do with anything else. We know it did. And next week we will see how the resurrection was absolutely necessary for the crucifixion to mean anything. But we know he went to the cross. We know he went willingly. And we know he went there to pay the price for sinful humanity to be saved. What we also need to know, every one of us needs to know, is that that doesn't mean everybody's saved. The fact that everybody is not saved doesn't mean God didn't pay enough. It doesn't mean that Christ's death wasn't sufficient. It means that many of us remain unconvinced or simply unwilling to accept that payment for our sin. There's something too big, too scary, and it really hurts our pride. Hey, if I owe God something, I'll pay it. Or even worse, He didn't have to die for me. I've never done anything that I owe any man anything. I've lived by the light that I have, and I've got nothing to be ashamed of. What do I need saved from? I am a good man. It really does take the Spirit of God to show us. It's what Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes. He will convict men of sin. Live the gospel and preach the gospel. Live your life in such a way that people know you have something that they need. Preach the gospel so they know exactly what it is they need. But never forget to pray because you, with all of your persuasion and all of your living the gospel, cannot convict the sinner of sin. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. We have to be talking to God about people as much as we are talking to people about God. But when we come to that moment where it hits us, I am lost. Wait a second. And God opens our eyes, opens our hearts to the truth that I can't save myself. I really am not good compared to a holy God. Doesn't matter if I'm better than my neighbor. Certainly doesn't matter if I'm better than Hitler. That's setting the bar pretty low, right? I'm not good enough for God. Jesus died and he died for me. God the Son, Jesus Christ is Lord, and he died on the cross, and God raised him from the dead. You believe that, and you make that confession? The same Paul who wrote these other things about the crucifixion said, you'll be saved. If you'll confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from your sin, saved from a destiny in hell that keeps you forever separated from God. My question is a simple one. Have you done it? Have you made that decision? Have you made that confession? Have you prayed that prayer? If you haven't, will you do it today? Say, no, I want to wait till Easter. Easter's a bigger deal. Don't wait another week. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. And you can come next week and just celebrate and enjoy it with the rest of us Christians redeemed believers celebrate the resurrection don't miss next week don't miss Friday if you can at all help it certainly don't miss next Sunday it's not just going to be a great breakfast and uh, look at everybody's pretty hats and lavender shirts and shiny ties you're going to hear an important message I believe will help you appreciate the significance of the resurrection Meanwhile, right now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray. I'm going to close this uh, message with a prayer. and Then we're going to sing a song. As soon as I'm done praying, as soon as we start singing, you need to make that decision. You need to accept that payment on your behalf. Come up here and let me pray with you. Will you do that? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. God, we could never. It's so hard to imagine us ever feeling like we could ask you to go to the cross that we could ask you to pay what you That We are so thankful that you didn't wait to ask us, that you gave your son. You gave him up to be killed, to be crucified, so that you could pay the debt that we could never pay you. We're so thankful you've done that. We're thankful for how you have revealed that process in your word. those of us who have believed, who have been the grateful recipients of that awesome, extravagant salvation, we lift our hearts and our voices up to you now and pray, Holy Spirit, that you would search the hearts of everyone in the sound of my voice. And if there is one, even one, who has not responded to that call, who has not yielded or surrendered their life to you, that you would convict them of sin, make them aware of their need, and grant them the boldness, the humility, the wisdom, everything they need to come and receive that gift of eternal life today. In Jesus' name, all the believers said, amen. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.